I need some help on our screen. We're going to get ready to get into the Word of God tonight. We've got two speakers that will be speaking. First off, we want to get, uh, all of our guests, we want to welcome you. Thank you for being here tonight. I know we do in the house have some guests. And thank you for coming and being with us on a Sunday night. We hope that you are blessed, and we hope that you have felt the presence of God, and we hope you leave blessed. Amen. That being said, we're going into a series that is very much geared and directed toward our church family. So if you would direct your attention to the screen, this message is for River of Life saints and church members. All right? If you are a guest, this teaching is not directed at you and may not apply. So our approach is this. Everybody is welcome at River of Life Church. Everybody in our community is welcome. We want you to come. You know, there's some things we ought to specify. There is an address code. I've had people in the community say, is there a dress code? You can come any way that you want to come to church. Within reason, I would have to say, probably. <laughs> Within reason. But you, you are welcome here. But we want you to know, while this word is being taught, we're not pointing fingers at you. We don't want, if you're a guest here, we don't want you to feel uncomfortable. But this is very much what this church believes. Out of the word of God. And we're just going to do it, kind of a deep dive and talk about that. And uh, it's been a while since we've done it to this degree. So that's what this is all about. So all of our guests, thank you for being here. Just remember this as we go through this lesson. We have two speakers. First of all, I'm going to introduce your first lady, your pastor's wife. Sister Lichtel is going to come and she's going to speak on one subject. Wow. I'm going to borrow Brother Foster's Wow. You know, there are some songs you just wish you had written. I'm Not Afraid is one of those songs that I wish I had written that song. And that song is the other song I wish I had written because that song is exactly what my heart says. He's not a burden. And so my subject tonight, and before I start the subject, I'm actually going to lay just a real small foundation here. And I want to talk about love. Because at the core of everything I do is my love for God. So I was thinking about it today and I just thought, you know, how do you show someone? I've heard people say, you know, how do I know if I love God? Well, how do you show someone that you love them? There's lots of different ways we could talk about. Um, quality time together, doing something you know they like, even if you're not a fan. That's showing love. Um, different things. Uh, but if I love my husband, then I care what he likes, and I care what he dislikes. That doesn't mean I don't have a brain and I don't have an opinion, but it means I really care. And so if there's something that he really likes, then I'm going to do that often because that's going to make my relationship better. And when two people do that together, you have a great relationship. And I was thinking about that. It's really no different with God. If, you, if I truly love God, then I want to know how he feels about things. And he's been good enough to give us his word and a pastor and principles in his word so that we know what he likes and what he dislikes. And in some instances, what he hates. Last week, we talked about things that were an abomination to God, meaning that he hates them. And I'm glad that he's given us that roadmap because it helps me to show him that I love him. So that being said, he doesn't just leave us. You know, there's a song that says, tell me what can I do? I can't remember how it goes, but the words are, tell me what can I do? And he tells us what we can do in thankfulness to him. And so you can give your life back to him with no strings attached. And that's an easier thing to do, to say than to actually do. 
But we grow in our love just like you grow in a natural relationship. You grow in your love with God, and it goes, grows deeper with time. And there are certain things that with time, you, be, you get convicted over. Um, there's additional things maybe that aren't even going to be covered here that the Lord might deal with you about that maybe isn't something that the person next to you deals with, but for you, it's wrong. And those are called convictions, and God's good enough to give us those. But John chapter um, 14, verse 15 some of these scriptures, she's going to put them up in um, KJV. Some of them I'm going to read in a different translation, but you'll get the gist. John 14 and 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Period. Short and sweet. It doesn't say, if you love me, here are some commandments you can look through and decide which ones you want to do. It doesn't say, if you feel convicted about drugs, then you need to stop doing them. He, he's God, and so he tells us, and he gives us principles, and he expects us to follow them if we love him. So that being said, how can I know if I love God? It's based on my level of obedience to God. Amen? He gives us principles and commandments and expects us to follow them with our whole heart, and not just like the boy that's standing up in the corner, to follow them willingly. Obedience, we talk about in marriages all the time, we talk about love languages. You know, it does you good to learn your spouse's love language, your kid's love language, anybody you're close to. It's the same thing with God, and I believe that God's love language is obedience. Obedience is the highest form of devotion and worship. Psalms chapter 119, 33, and 34 says, Teach me your decrees, O Lord. This is the NLT, so you can read it in the other one. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. That's the New Living Translation. God doesn't owe me an explanation of what he loves and what he hates. He doesn't owe me any explanations because I owe him my whole life. Rick Warren wrote a book, and I haven't read it, but now after reading this, I'd like to. The name of the book is Obedience is an Act of Worship. And he says, understanding can wait but obedience cannot. Instant obedience will teach you more about God than a lifetime of Bible discussion. In fact, you will never understand some commandments until you first obey them. Remember the Bible says obedience is better than sacrifice? Obedience unlocks understanding. Man, that's good. So do you want to know how much you love God? How much do you obey him? Great, willing obedience equals great love. Obedience withheld? Well, might need to work on that a little bit. James chapter 2 and 24 says, So you see we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. The KJV says we're justified by works and not by faith only. Your obedience makes him smile and brings him pleasure. Just like your children. When, they, when, they're, when you take them somewhere and they're good, it's like, yes. Awesome. Holiness is marks of my devotion to my God, who is the Lord of my life. If he is not in control of my life, then he is not Lord of it. God's word is my final authority. I submit to his commandments and his principles. And I am thankful for the blessing of making God smile and bringing him pleasure. 
It shows my love and my thankfulness. So that's why, even for me, this series has been really good. Because sometimes I forget the whys. Because it's all I've ever known. It just comes very natural. And I forget that there really is reasons and that there is such a blessing. So when I bring this subject to you tonight, I just want you to know, I don't ever want you to feel sorry for me and how I live because I am so blessed. And if there's one thing I just want to get out there is that it's a positive thing. It's not negative. But my subject tonight is why I choose or why we choose as a church not to wear makeup. Yep, I choose not to. I remember when I was in high school, people would say, why do you wear dresses? Do you have to? Is it because your church teaches it? No, you know, you're the whole thing. You know, they ask you the same questions. And when you get to high school, Hannah, you gave me goosebumps when you were talking, by the way. Um, when you get to high school, though, I did find the same thing. I found that when I was able to explain to them, people are, people are, they're used to weird people because people are weird. And so they were just like, okay, well, each for their own but yet they did respect me for it. So that's my subject. So I'm gonna dive in real quick here. What is the purpose of makeup and where did it come from? I'm gonna give you just a little bit of history and then we're gonna see what the Bible says about it. Wikipedia says the history of cosmetics spans at least 7,000 years. It's present in almost every society on earth. Cosmetic body art is argued to have been the earliest form of ritual in human culture. It was a heathen practice in its beginnings. The first use of prototype cosmetics is usually traced back to the ancient Egyptians. Many of the tombs contained makeup canisters and kits. The purpose of their painting was to impress dead gods. When the Romans adopted these practices, it became more to impress other people and then became more as a sexual alluring process. Cosmetics became a huge part of prostitution. Queen Victoria in 1819 to 1901, she made a public declaration that makeup was vulgar and improper due to its connection with prostitutes. In more recent history, makeup be first became common in the red light districts of New York, Amsterdam, Paris, and other large cities. Today, it's found in nearly every supermarket and corner drugstore. It's everywhere. The worldwide beauty industry, which covers everything from hair and skin care to makeup, is estimated $425 billion industry. That's a lot of money. Makeup in the Western world, who sets the standard for beauty? I found a really good article put out by the Reformed Church of God. I have no idea what their belief system is, but it was a great article and it was all about this. And they said that 19th century, it was immoral to paint your face and was associated with prostitution. I already said that. Most Christians never considered wearing makeup. And that's pretty easy to, all you got to do is type it in your little computer and it'll tell you all about that. The Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, this is what they said. Just stick with me here and we'll, we'll get past this. But the last two decades have seen makeup progress from its early category of women's conceit to become an art and an integral part of feminine beauty and psychology. Chief credit for this about face is the acceptance of widespread use of cosmetics goes to the motion picture industry, the movie industry, which set new standards of beauty and brought new products and principles of application and the use to the world's women. 
At the turn of the 20th century, makeup was viewed as something only proud, even arrogant women wore. With the invention of movies and television, Hollywood injected into the limelight the image of a movie starlet's face covered with cosmetics. Once this image was accepted by the masses, cosmetics became commonplace. That's the encyclopedia. But it was only after World War II that the uh, cosmetic industry began promoting, through advertising, the concept of flawless beauty. And I know I read an article a long time ago about the fact that, you know, even back you, you, when you watched like Little House on the Prairie, there were hardly any mirrors back in the day. Mirrors really became popular after the makeup industry came in because then all of a sudden people weren't happy with themselves anymore. When you watch Little House on the Prairie, they didn't have a lot of mirrors. They didn't stop and stare at themselves and see every flaw that they had. They just lived life and what they had is what they had. Um, relatively quickly, this thinking took hold around the world with women and girls becoming enamored with the idea that they could be even more attractive no matter how attractive they were. In the Great Depression, people began to imitate actors and actresses and look to Hollywood. People began to mimic the stars. Open use of cosmetics became acceptable, but brought a new pressure for beauty, which is kind of what I was just saying. It says, vanity is the desire to look more beautiful. It is what causes women to paint their faces and is perhaps the most powerful of human drives. And what I read was, this is an encyclopedia. I mean, they have no reason to slant anything that they're saying. The Encyclopedia, encyclopedia Britannica defines cosmetics as products nobody needs, but wanting them is in the human nature. Today, the obsession with being beautiful has led nearly 30 million people to eating disorders. That's sad. The obsession with looking young and turning back the clock has now gone beyond outrageous. It's a huge market that brings in millions of dollars. Consider this. My husband and I were talking about this the other day. How many young girls do you see that aren't pretty? Cute, pretty, just... You don't, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but you don't see very many ugly young girls. I never thought about it before, but it's true. Because in your youth, you're, you're just beautiful. And so you don't need that. The master creator who created the most beautiful places and things on earth is the same creator that made you. Now, we went to, uh, where did we go? Uh, Utah this summer. He and I took a vacation to to the uh, national park there, Zion National Park. If you ever get to go, go. It's one of the most majestic places I've ever seen. And it's beautiful, but it's the same creator that, had, that created us. The same God that created each of us with our own unique fingerprint and giftings. You are his masterpiece. Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalms 139, 14. In the NLT, it says, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Proverbs 31 and 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. God's definition of beauty is a woman who fears the Lord. Beauty is really about a godly inner character that shows through on the outside, which is what we're talking about, inside out. Have you ever met somebody that wasn't maybe stunningly beautiful the first time you met them, but as you got to know them, 
all of a sudden you really thought they were just really a beautiful person. I know a lot of people like that. And it's, that's because of what we are on the inside should be what determines, not just what we look like on the outside. And so we want our inward beauty to shine. I know I remember Sister, uh, she played the uh, saxophone, um, Hernandez. She was probably the first, I was a teenager when I met her, and I met her from a distance at first. She was playing a, she was playing a mean saxophone. And she, that woman, had practiced eight hours a day to play the saxophone. And when she, prayed, when she played for God, buddy, the power came down. And she was the first person that I ever... Now, I, I know a lot of pretty people that I've been raised with, but when I looked at her, her face shone. And I remember as a teenager saying, wow, now that's what that looks like. Because you hear people say that. And I remember thinking, wow, I'd like to be like that. I mean, all you had to do is look at her and she just just beamed God, just amazing. Um, beauty is really about the inner character. Uh, inward beauty doesn't fade with age and can't be destroyed by time or circumstances. And your outward body will. You're only gonna keep your colored hair for so long. I know. It, it fades and turns white and happens really quickly. It is your glory, that's right. That's right, that's a whole different subject, but um, it would be like taking, I almost brought one in here, but it would almost be like taking a beautiful painting that somebody worked really hard to paint that is really, really beautiful, and just looking at it and being like, eh, I think that tree looks stupid there, I think it needs another branch there, and just, just like drawing it in. Somebody like me drawing it in who can't draw a stick figure. It's like taking a painting and deciding that you don't like it. And so I'm gonna change it. I'm just gonna paint over it. I'm just gonna paint the whole painting black and I'm gonna start over. That would be stupid. And the big thing is, it's not yours to do that because you didn't paint it. And you know what, my body isn't mine to do that either because I didn't create myself. And he, we are his workmanship. Another, another translation says, his masterpiece. And what must it feel to him when I've heard people say, um, yeah, I couldn't even go to the mailbox until I put my face on. And if you've said that, I don't blame you. I'm just saying I've heard that. And I just think, who's in bondage? If you can't leave your house and run to the store because you need to put a face on, I don't feel like I'm in bondage to that. I can just put my clothes on and go to the store. But what does it say to God? God does not make junk, and you are not junk. What about the lady who won't take, or oh, I already said that, who won't take the garbage out? First of all, his beautiful creation, he doesn't want, he doesn't want you to cover up your beautifulness with fakeness. Just the term to put my face on insinuates fakeness. It must be really a slap to the master creator. And like I said, I don't offer any judgment here at all. I'm just putting it out there. God never intended his creation to use or need superficial or false covering. We are made in the image of God and he's given us everything we need. Don't be so swayed by society's idea of beauty. What is interesting is if you type in the search engine, I typed in uh, YouTube the other day, why I don't wear makeup. I just wanted to see what came up. My goodness, there was hundreds of people 
that just choose not to wear makeup. It didn't really have anything to do with their walk with God or anything, but um, did you know, which you probably do know this, but I never knew this, you can't sleep in makeup, or you're not supposed to. And there's like a thousand reasons why. Well, how good is that for you? I mean, if they say you better be sure and take that makeup off when you sleep because it will ruin your skin, it'll do this, I mean, it, like a hundred things it will do to you. And I just thought, wow, I mean, that's, that's terrible. But that's a lot of terrible things. It's not, it's not very healthy. Make, makeup causes buildup in pores, causes inflammation, and leads to more breakouts. They say the, the sad part is all the teenagers wear the makeup to cover the breakouts, and then the makeup causes the breakouts. It's just like a big thing. Causes eye infections, skin allergies. TheList.com has a great article called What Happens When You Stop Wearing Makeup. Dr. Ahmed, he's a dermatologist, he said makeup is the root cause of acne or skin problems in over 30% of female patients. According to Vision Source Eye Care, one of the most serious injuries that can be caused by makeup is damage to your cornea. Makeup messes with your skin's natural cell renewal process which can wreak havoc on your skin. No makeup means no nasty germy, I'm just reading this, no nasty germy residue left behind to interrupt the formation of new cells. This leaves us with a face that is naturally more vibrant and more hydrated. Do you know that your skin re revitalizes every night when you sleep, just like the rest of your body? Your skin does the same thing. Everyone ages. So rather than trying to bury your age under layers of foundation, embrace your true face. You might be surprised how much younger you actually look. Scienceofpeople.com did a social experiment of three profiles of the same girl with three different levels of makeup and how she interacted with men. I'm not going to really go into it, but they found that the men treated the natural one with a lot more respect, almost like a friend or a sister versus promiscuous, that kind of thing. The men said that they felt safe. They didn't feel any, they didn't think that she was after anything, they just thought she wanted to be their friend. The men said that they felt that her sexual willingness was correlated with how much makeup she was wearing. That's just a study, I'm just throwing it out there. There are lots of men in the world who think natural is beautiful. Not, and that's not even counting the church, in the world at large, They've done studies. There's lots of men that think natural is beautiful, because it is. The world wants you to think otherwise. TheList.com in that same article says the biggest, this is so powerful, the biggest benefit of not wearing makeup is more psychological than physiological. As a society, women are told that we need makeup, fillers or Botox, and that signs of aging are a bad thing. So instead of looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves, most of us look in the mirror and see only our flaws. But the empowerment that comes from being able to look in the mirror and see the beauty in a naked face that is void of paint that society tells us we need is the greatest benefit of all. That's cool. So mascara, everybody talks about that. What's, it's, what's the root from mascara? Obviously, it's a mask. That's where the word even comes from. Uh, to create a perceived beauty is another one of the definitions. Uh, cosmetic origin, the root word, uh, one definition is to improve beauty. The Greek word for cosmetic means of this world. There's a scripture that says, be not of this world. Collins Dictionary says, what is cosmetic change? If you describe changes as cosmetic, 
You mean they improve the appearance but don't change the basic nature, okay? You're usually implying that they are inadequate and showing your disapproval by changing it cosmetically. Ouch. Cosmetic measures do nothing to help the situation long-term. So there's lots of reasons not to wear makeup that isn't even necessarily godly, but the Bible does address the subject. So some people say, but I've never seen a reference to makeup in the Bible, so it must not matter. Understand that the actual words makeup, cosmetics, lipstick, mascara, they're not there, as lots of other words, drugs, and all that kind of stuff isn't there either. But direct references to makeup and eye paint are found in the Bible, and just what I'm just going to go real quickly through them, and what I want you to remember is that every time they're mentioned, it's always negative. If God wanted me to change my face, he would have put something in there telling me to do so, or allowing me to do so. The one that's the most commonly known is 2 Kings 9 and 30. It says, and when Jehu was come to Jez, uh, Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face and tired her head and looked out a window. Now, I read one place that said, well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, all you have to do is study her a little bit, and you'll figure out why nobody names their child Jezebel. That would be like the worst thing you could ever do to your kid is name your kid Jezebel because she was such an evil woman. Uh, Webster's definition of Jezebel includes that she was a shameless, morally unrestrained woman. Her name's been used for thousands of years to describe cunning, ruthless, and reprehensible women. GotQuestions.org says that Jezebel is a name synonymous with evil. She is the epitome of a wicked woman, insomuch that to this day no one will name their child Jezebel. It would be an insult. Her painting of the face was just her final act of defiance after many, many other acts of defiance. She's the only actual woman in the Bible that is referred to that painted her face. And then she's even referred to in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth, calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. She was a seducer. That's who she was. So I'm not, I, I don't believe that everybody, well, I know that everybody that wears makeup in the world, I don't believe they're all seducers. I don't believe they're all evil. I believe that 90% of people just have no clue where it came from and just have no clue that, that maybe God doesn't approve of that. And, uh, Face painting is never referred to positively. Jeremiah 4 and 30 says, And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Though thou clotheth, clotheth thyself with crimson, though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou rentest thy face with painting, in vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee. They will seek their, thy life. This is a picture of God issuing a sentence of destruction for rebellion, and he uses, uses that, that word picture. Israel was painting her face to please idols and the heathen nation and to go into their ways. Ezekiel 23, 40 and 41 says, And furthermore, that you have set for men to come from afar, unto whom a messenger was sent, and lo, they came. For whom thou didst wash thyself, painest thy eyes, and deck thyself with ornaments. Same thing. 
and saddest upon the stately bed in a table prepared for it, wherein thou hast set mine incense and mine oil. This is talking about a woman who played the harlot. Likens Israel unto an adulterous woman, specifying that she painted her eyes to attract her lovers. God wants his glory on our faces. Jude chapter 1 and 8 says, Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. If you look up the word defile, it means to stain, tinge, or dye with another color. And this was in reference, they were talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and how, what a horrible place that was. Your flesh was never meant to be defiled or painted. Paint is only used on inanimate objects. My husband told me this a long time ago, and I had never thought about it before, but it's true. You don't paint anything that's living. Trees aren't painted. Animals aren't painted. Nothing's, even plants aren't painted. Nothing that is living is ever painted except women. I don't know. Living things don't need paint because they have life. And they're created by the almighty creator. They don't need to be improved upon. And you don't need to be improved upon. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 Corinthians 6.19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. They're his. They're not yours. It's not for you to do with what you want, like it or not. Romans 12 and 1, we already read earlier, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. It's not too much to ask. So how did holy women of God adorn themselves? 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothing. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by their good works, the good things that they do. It's attracting. First Peter 3 and 3, whose adorning let it not be of outward adorning of plating of the hair, of the wearing of gold, or of the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, which in, the, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy, this is the NLT, fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. And finally, Proverbs 31 and 30 says, charm is deception, deceptive, and beauty does not last. But a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. The Bible says that beauty comes from within. And so I choose not to wear makeup because I want the glory of God to be able to shine out. And I want to be set apart for him, Hannah, so that people know, wow, there's something different about her. And that's one of the things that I choose as my bark of devotion and thankfulness to God who gave his life for me. Amen. Didn't she do a good job? Praise God. All right. Pastor said I have 25 minutes. They taught us in Bible school when you got 15 to 20 minutes, you follow the kiss rule. Right? Keep it simple, stupid. So I'm going to try to go through these notes as fast as I can. 
Uh, my topic tonight is going to be about jewelry. About jewelry. So I'm going to start with a picture, though. I'm going to start with a picture. Tell me if you know who this is. Hopefully I'll start with a picture. Hey! Who's that? That's Mr. T. Really, the first thing I, I thought of when I thought of Jeweler, the first person, he's one of the first persons that I thought of. And that's the only reason why he's up there. No, just kidding. Really, when you think about Mr. T, you remember his crazy hair, right? The mohawk, you remember the, the co common catchphrase, I pity the fool. And then you remember all this jewelry hanging about his neck. I got to thinking, what if pastor came to church like that? What would you think of that? That'd be weird. Not a good weird either. We're talking about weird tonight. That's not a good weird. That's not a good weird. It'd be weird. <laughs> but really, the question is tonight, should a Christian look like Mr. T? Should a Christian look like Mr. T? No, the real question tonight is, when it comes down to it, should a, should a Christian wear jewelry? I'm going to lay a foundation here. 1 Peter 3, 1. Peter starts talking about this jewelry thing. She already, pastor's wife already mentioned this scripture. But listen to what Peter says, how he starts out the topic. He says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of their wives. What the preacher Peter is saying here is if you have an unsaved husband that does not obey the word, that they can be won or be won over by the way that the saved wife conducts herself, her lifestyle, the way that she acts, the way that she treats people. There's a possibility that one can win over the lost loved one by their, by their conversation or their lifestyle. Matter of fact, Jesus said it like this in Matthew. He said, you are the light of the world, right? A city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. And then he says this, chapter 5, verse 16. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And then what? And then glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, the way that I conduct my life, the way that I live, the way that I operate before men can be a mode or an operation of outreach to a lost and dying world. Does holiness matter, church? Does holiness matter? Yes. Matter of fact, hopefully he does not care if I put him on the spot here. I didn't ask. But Jason Solberg came and talked to me after service this morning. We started talking about church. And he said, you know what, there's something different about this church. I've never been to a church where people are so kind, so friendly, so kind-hearted, so inviting. You know what that is? That's the Holy Ghost on the inside, right? Working on the outside. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about with this series, Inside Out. Holy Ghost working on the inside, working on the outside. Amen. So Peter goes on, he says in verse 2, he says, while they or the unsaved loved one, behold your chaste conversation, meaning a pure lifestyle, coupled with fear. He says, while they behold, meaning they are watching you. Don't mean to creep you out, but people are watching you. The world is watching you. There's that one song, I always feel like somebody is watching me. You ever heard that one? Well, it's the truth. 
People are watching you. People are watching the way you conduct your life. People are watching even the way you dress because your dress says a lot about you, right? So why is holiness important? Hebrews 12, 14 says this, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. What does that mean? That means I'm not going to see the Lord without holiness. But it also means this, that an unsaved and lost and dying world without holiness on our people, they're not going to see who God is, right? They're not going to see the Lord. But through our lifestyle, the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we dress, it allows somebody to see God. or Maybe the only, only God that they'll ever see. 1 Peter 3.3, 3, he continues, he says, Who's adorning? Who's adorning? You're adorning. Let it not be the outward adorning of plating, of plating the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of the apparel. So what is he talking about? The plating of hair. Barnes said this, according to this, according to the prevailing fashion of Eastern women, they often ornamented their hair with spangles or with silver wire or tissue interwoven into their hair. Really, this relates to the plating of hair has to do also with the outlandish and exuberant hair or, decorating, or decorating one's hair to gain attention, a lot of times with precious metals and with jewels. The wearing of gold, what is he talking about this? He's talking about jewelry, right? Earrings, bracelets, necklace, necklaces. He says the putting on of apparel. Why does he put this in there? So according to, according to the context of this scripture, of these verses, he's talking about dressing in a manner that is outlandish or attention-seeking. Look at me, right? Apparel that says, hey, look at me. Apparel that gets everyone's attention. You see, modesty, we're talking, you know, we're talking about a lot of modesty. Modesty is not just the length of the skirt. It's not just the length of the skirt. It's not just the, 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 cut, of the of, cut of the shirt. No, modesty has to do with not only length, but also look. Also, look, let me tell you something. It's not modest if I show up to church in a hot pink suit. You know why? Because I'm saying this. Look at me. Look who I am. Give me your attention. I want your attention. That's not modesty. It's not modesty according to Scripture. First Peter 3, 4, he continues. He says, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. So he says, don't put all this stuff on you, right? To get attention, but rather what you should be adorning yourself with is a meek and a quiet spirit after the inward man, right? So part of this context, part of the context of these verses is you have a world that is watching you. You have unsaved people that are watching you. God forbid the first thing they notice when they come into church as my gold chain on my neck, the diamonds that are in my ears, the braided bracelets around my wrist, or my crazy outlandish wardrobe. But the first thing that an unsaved person should notice on me is the grace and the operation of God in my life. Amen? So how does that happen? Just what, it, what we just went through. You take off the jewelry. You take off the attention-seeking apparel. And you put on meekness. You put on a quiet spirit. You put on modesty, right? You show the world who Jesus is. That's how we do it. Paul says it like this, 1 Timothy 2.8. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, 
lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. We've heard this scripture a lot in this church, right? From pastor, from our men's minister, ministry leader, Mike Tribbett. What is he talking about? He's, he's, he's addressing issues that, that pertain to men, That's, that usually pertain to men. Obviously, there's exceptions. It says, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. But then he goes, he goes in like manner also. Then he starts addressing the women. Because this usually usually pertains to women. He says, adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness, that means bashful, and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but with good works, but with good works. Listen, if the apostle is telling us to wear modest apparel, and then after that in those verses, he tells us not to wear gold and jewelry and pearls, Based on that, we can come to the obvious conclusion that jewelry is not considered to be modest apparel to God, and it does not produce bashfulness. But rather, the purpose of jewelry is that of pride and of self-promotion. Look at me. Look at me. Now, does everybody that wear jewelry think about this stuff? Not necessarily, right? Sometimes it's the custom of our world. Uh, and obviously, I mean, it's got to be mentioned here, we wear wedding rings, we wear watches, right? The purpose of the wedding ring, though, should not be, look at my big old diamond, right? Look at the big carrot in my, in my ring. No, it, it serves a purpose, right? The watch serves a purpose to tell time. The, the ring serves a purpose that says, ladies, get away. Right? I'm taken. Amen. I'm taken. You know, whatever. <laughs> Amen. All right. Where am I at now? I've got 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> See, the promotion, when it comes down to it, the promotion of self is not godly. No matter how you cut it, the promotion of self is not godly. Matter of fact, there was an angel in heaven that one time tried to promote himself. Right? What happened to him? He was cast down. Amen. Thank God. He's still going down. Jesus' name, right? We read the back of the book. We got victory. Man, I had to say that. Jesus. But I typed in this question in Google. I typed in a simple question. I said, what is the purpose of jewelry? What is the purpose of jewelry? This is the answer that I received, or these are some of the answers that I received reading these articles. So really, when it comes down to it, these, these answers that I'm giving, this is not from the Bible. This is why the world wears jewelry. <clears throat> this is why the world wears jewelry. The purpose is for the wearer to stand out from the crowd. Stand out from the crowd. Look at me, right? Look at my gold chain. Look at the diamonds in my ear. Another article said to put one's wealth and prestige on display for everyone to see. Another article said this, and I found this kind of interesting. It said, as I said, this is not a Christian article. It said, there is a sexual purpose to attract a mate. A woman wears a necklace down on her chest to bring attention to her breasts. In her ears to bring attention to her face and her eyes. A belly ring to attract the eye towards another strongly reproductive related part of the body. Hmm. This is the purpose of jewelry based what the world what the world sees the purpose of jewelry is it is self-promotion 
It is the love of money. Look at, look at my prestige. Look at how much money I got. Right? Showing one's wealth. And it is sexual attraction. 1 John 2.15, another scripture that was already mentioned. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are commanded by this scripture to not love the world. To not love the world. In the, in the following verse, though, John defines the world, right? He says, for all, that, all, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says this, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So the lust of the, lust of the flesh is a lust of craving after your fleshly appetites, right? A lust or craving after your fleshly appetites. Lust of the eyes. The eyes are delighted with treasures, right? Riches and possessions. Also, it could be a lust of covetousness, right? The pride of life. A vain mind cra craves all the grandeur, the honor, and the applause. Sounds like a lot of reasons why people wear jewelry. Anything that promotes the flesh and the appetites of the flesh are not of God, but are of this world. If the purpose of jewelry is to stand out from, from the crowd, to flaunt one's wealth and riches, and to sexually attract, the wearing of jewelry is of this world worldly. 1 Peter 3.3, 3, back to that verse. It says, Whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of the wearing of gold or of putting on an, of apparel. It's interesting, this verse. What's interesting in this verse is the word adorn. Adorn comes from the Greek word cosmos, which has its, or cosmos, which has its primary meaning to arrange, to put in order, to decorate. It is used in this verse with reference to the manner in which Christian women were urged how to dress or how not to dress. But 90%, if you look up this word, 90% of the time in your New Testament, this word cosmos is translated into the English as the word world. It is that same word cosmos that is used in the scripture we just read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Love not the world, cosmos. Could it be the underlying message to the church when Peter tells us not to adorn ourselves with the wearing of jewelry and outlandish clothing, with the, with the purpose of self-promotion that Peter is actually telling us, don't put on the world. Don't look like the world. Don't dress like the world. You were meant to be different. You were meant to be different. It is interesting in the Old Testament that the use of jewelry is most often associated with idolatry, sexual perversion, and pride. Genesis, we've got to go through these fast. Genesis 35, 2 says this, Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, he said, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean. Change your garments, and let us arise and go unto Bethel, and I will make thee an altar unto God. Dropping down to verse 4, and he says, And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hands, and all their earrings which were in their ears. <clears throat> and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. It is evident that from this text, it was customary to connect the use of earrings with idolatry. Hosea 2.13 says this, And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, which was an idol, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels. And she went after her lovers, her sexual attraction, right? She used her earrings, she used her jewels to go after her lovers, and forgot me, saith the Lord. 
Of course, we, we learn about uh, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 21, that God tells the Jews to go to the Egyptians. He says, I'll, I'll put favor in your sight with the Egyptians. And he says, go borrow of your neighbor and tell and, and of her that sojourn in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And you shall put them upon your sons, upon your daughters, and, they sh and you shall spoil the Egyptians. We know that this, the reason for this, the reason why God told them to go borrow the jewels of the Egyptians, the precious metal, all the, the jewelry of the, the Egyptians was because they, put, they were in slavery. This was payment for hundreds of years of slavery of the Egyptians. So God pays them back with these precious metals. But the problem is, is what did they end up doing with these precious metals? They ended up making the God, right? The golden calf. Ezekiel 32 verse 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for, his, for as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears, your wives, of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said... These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. It was jewelry that was used to make the golden calf. Isaiah 3 and 16 says this, Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, or prideful, right, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes. Was he, what is he describing? He's describing a person that's like this, right? Look at me. Look how cool I am. Look at me. Self-promotion. Right? With wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making tinkling with their feet. Bracelet. They use, they use bracelets on their feet with ornaments. It says, Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts or their shame. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and, and their round tires like the moon, the chains, the bracelets, the mufflers, the bonnets, the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets, and the earrings, the rings, and the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel, and the mantles, and the whipples, and the crisping pins, and the glasses, and the fine linen, and the hoods, and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of a sweet smell, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, and instead of a well-set hair, well hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, a girdle of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. It says, I'm going to take it away. Right? What, what Israel used. To, to promote themselves, what Israel used to show quote-unquote beauty, right? To be like the world around them. God says, I'm going to take that away. And instead, I'm going to give you shame. Instead, I will expose your shame, I should say. Revelation 17 says this. Revelation 17 describes the end-time church, what the end-time church or the harlot church is going to look like. Notice, he says, so he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was, was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. Notice, what did she deck herself with? She decked herself with jewelry, 
with gold, with precious stones, with pearls, and a golden cup. It all comes down to this. What it, what it all comes down to is this. Is my life should not be a reflection of self-promotion, of pride, a reflect, or a reflection of this world. But rather, my life should be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Amen? My life shouldn't say, look at me. But my life should rather say, look at him. Look at him. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world. Or don't go after the pattern of this world. Don't be like them. But rather, be ye transformed. Amen? By the renewing of your mind. And this is my last point. If our musicians would come. <clears throat> when you look at the creative days in Genesis, after the day of creation, God ends each and every day by looking at his creation and seeing that his creation is good. For instance, on the first day, Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was what? It was good. It was good. The second day, he looked at his creation. After it was all said and done, he, on the second day, he looked at his creation. What did he say? It was good. On the third day, God creates the dry land. Most likely it is on this day where God places in the ground the gold, the jewels, the diamonds, the crystals, all the world's precious metals and precious stones. And, was, and when God was done on this day, he looked at his creation and what did he say? He says it was good. But something different happens on the sixth. See, God creates all the animals, right? But then he scoops down and he grabs a hold of some dirt. And he forms man and breathes into man the breath of life. And the Bible says that man was made in the image of God. And when that day was done, God looks at his handiwork. But this time, God doesn't say it was good. But rather, what does he say about this day? He says it was very good. Very good. Why? Because I believe when God sees his image, it's not just good, but when God sees his image, it pleases him so much that it's not just good. It's very good. It's very good. Amen. You see, thousands of years later, a man named Jesus was getting baptized by John the Baptist. When all of a sudden, after his baptism, the Bible says the heavens were opened and a, vo and a voice rang from heaven and it said this. It said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the Bible says that this Jesus was made or this Jesus was the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is the image of God. And when God looked at, man, at that man, Jesus, when God looked at his image and saw that the way that he lived his life, his attitude, his lifestyle, he said, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. So what is my point? If we could all stand, what is my point? My point is this, is that you were made to please God. You were made, church, saint of God, to please God, to live a life that is pleasing and holy before God. So if you want to please God, you have to look like Jesus. You have to act like Jesus. You have to reflect who Jesus was.
Paul said this about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He said, let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this gets down to the root of the matter. He says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but, was made, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death, even the death of the cross. A famous singer wrote a song. He entitled the song, Would Jesus Wear a Rolex? It is said that he wrote this song in response to the modern-day televangelists. It went like this. It said, woke up this morning turned on the TV set. There in living color was something I can't forget. This man was preaching at me, yay, laying on the charm, asking me for 20 with 10,000 on his arm. He wore designer clothes and a big smile on his face, telling me salvation while they sang Amazing Grace. Asking me for money when he had all the signs of wealth. I almost wrote a check out, yeah. Then I asked myself, would he wear a pinky ring? Would he drive a brand new car? Would his wife wear furs and diamonds? Would his dressing room have a star? If he came back tomorrow, well, there's something I'd like to know. Could you tell me, would Jesus wear a Rolex, a Rolex on his television show? See, I don't want wearing, the wearing of anything or the doing of anything, any lifestyle, anything that I'm doing, anything that I'm wearing to take away for my purpose in this life, that I would reflect who Jesus was. What was it said about Jesus is that, is that he put on himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. That's what I want to represent, church. And that's the issue that we're talking about tonight. That's, that's the principle we're talking about tonight, is I want to reflect Jesus to this world. I want to reflect Jesus to this world. I want to be like him in every aspect of my life, in the way that I conduct myself, but not only in that way, but in the way that I dress, the way that I talk, what I do. I want the world to see Jesus. Amen. Is that your prayer tonight? Amen. Is that your prayer tonight? Hallelujah. If that's your prayer. Why don't we just, why don't we just come around the front?